guess I would encourage people um, if they have a concern about a friend or a family member because they are seeing things that indicate there might be a problem um, behavior-wise, don't be afraid to just express concern. People want to know that somebody cares. It may be the start of something. If you find yourself asking yourself the question, do I have a problem? Then, you know, then you, then you might want to wonder, you know, um, you know there, there's probably a reason you're asking yourself. So you might want to, at the very least, if you have any kind of provider, you know, just bring your concern to that provider. There can be so much shame that can stand in the way of even taking that first step to bring it up to your primary care physician or or whoever. I just would want to encourage that person to, oh, try to try to put that aside for just one moment as hard as it can be and just reach out um, and know that we are not here to judge you. That is not our job. Hello and welcome back to another Essential Conversation. This podcast series is intended for those individuals who would like to obtain a basic knowledge of substance use and learn helpful ways to identify signs and symptoms of a potential challenge with substances. During this episode, we will talk about the different stages of substance use and identify if and when someone should reach out for the most appropriate help or intervention. The subject matter experts for today's discussion are um, Ms. Lisa Carter, a technology transfer specialist from the Mid-America Technology Transfer Center in Missouri. Jessica Berry, a licensed team leader from Recovery Health Services. And Mr. Sean Holland, also a licensed team leader from Recovery Health Services at Truman Medical Centers in Kansas City, Missouri. I am Cretia Williams, Special Projects Coordinator from the Center for Trauma-Informed Innovation, and I will be your moderator today. This project is brought to you by the Mid-America Addiction Technology Transfer Centers and is funded by SAMHSA or the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. The content on this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of SAMHSA. So welcome Lisa, Jessica, and Sean. Um, It is so good to have each of you join us today. We'll start with Lisa and then we'll go to Jessica and Sean. Can each of you give the listeners a brief bio of your experience in the field of mental health and substance use? Sure. Thank you, Krisha. So my name is Lisa Carter, and I am a licensed professional counselor and also a licensed clinical addiction counselor in the state of Kansas. And my background is mostly in clinical SUD addiction counseling and then also program management. Um, Also have done some work very recently with seniors and also uh, substance use in the senior aging population. I've been with the Mid-America Addiction Technology Transfer Center since January of this year. So I'm Jessica, and I am currently a licensed team leader at Recovery Health Services, like Krisha mentioned. Um, I've been in the field of substance use disorders for a little over 10 years at least, and I started out in this field as a case manager and kind of worked my way up to 
licensed practicing counselor for the state of Missouri, and then on to management slash team leader. Uh, prior to all of that experience, I worked a little bit with uh, adolescents with behavioral health problems, and some of them also had addiction. So thanks, glad to be here. Hi, my name is Sean. I am a uh, licensed professional counselor here at Truman Medical Center. Um, I'm a supervisor in our department of uh, recovery health services. We, we provide services to um, individuals with dual diagnosis. I've been uh, with this department for 15 years. I'm also a part-time uh, uh, professor at the University of Central Missouri. Uh, so I've been doing that for uh, about a year and a half. So I really enjoy that. So um, really looking forward to Awesome. Thank you all for your um, introductions. I am super excited about today's discussion, and I think I truly do think that this is an essential conversation to have. Uh, substance use in itself is not really an uncommon topic, but when it's determining the differences between like recreational use, dependence, and addictive behaviors. That's where the conversation becomes a little bit tricky and a little bit more controversial. So I hear questions like, where or who does this information come from to tell me that if I have so many drinks, then I'm addicted? Or statements like, I only have, I only drink on the weekends or I only smoke on the weekends, you know, to kind of help take the edge off, then I'm okay. I mean, that doesn't mean I have a problem, does it? Well, today, We'll address some of those questions and maybe some of those statements or concerns um, that yet provoke potentially controversial conversations and thoughts. So Lisa, I wanted to start with you. I wanna make sure that we're using the appropriate language as we're talking about substance use, especially when it comes to addictive behaviors. So what is the difference between recreational use, dependence and addictions are those the most appropriate terms to use? Well, we hear a lot of those terms fly around, right, uh, over the years. You hear those terms clinically in treatment facilities. You hear them among the substance-using population. You hear them within your own circle of friends and family. So typically, when we talk about recreational use, we're talking about maybe the age group of teens to early 20s, and then on into adulthood where, you know, it can start with some experimentation, may move on to um, the regular use of a substance socially, you know, special events, parties, get-togethers, but not really ever any serious consequences from the use. That's typically what we think of as recreational users. Then we talk about dependence and addiction, and a lot of times those terms are used interchangeably. Um, you know, dependence is where you, you need the substance psychologically um, or physically in order to function. Addiction is all of the, that as well, um, including all of the negative consequences that come with it. So where we tend to focus, though, as clinicians, and the Bible, so to speak, would be, you know, the, the DSM-5 and the way that it is currently defining substance use disorder. So back in the DSM-4 and the versions before that, 
um, you know, we had abuse and dependence and criteria for that. Mm-hmm. Now in the revision, we have just um, substance use disorder. And then within that behaviors occurring, meeting a criteria or not meeting the list of criteria, but then coming up with a determination as to whether there is a mild, moderate, or severe substance use disorder. So we've really gotten away from abuse and dependence and really just talk about substance use disorder occurring on a continuum of consequences. Um, Very helpful to know. Thank you so much. Okay, so another question then. So Lisa explained um, the appropriate language to use and how substance use disorders kind of like how I'm picturing it. It's like the umbrella and then underneath the umbrella, there's there are different types of severity that determines how um, severe someone's use can be. How do you make that that diagnosis as professionals? Uh, Sean, we'll start with you. For sure. So as, as Lisa stated, you know, uh, we use a diagnostic manual. Um, I mean, to make, to make it make it as simple as possible. We use a manual that that you know details criteria. Um, that lets us be able to give us a really good idea of what diagnosis is, is appropriate um, for someone. So, you know, and then we and we can also break it down by severity. And so, you know, certain you know certain um, uh, you know it might be mild, moderate, severe. So, like for you know mild, for example, might say you know they meet you know they meet two of the criteria. Moderate is like oh they meet four or something. You know, so that's what helps us know you know what what level of severity is for a diagnosis. Uh, Lisa, do you have anything to add? How would professionals make a diagnosis? Well, again, you know, we we refer to our list of criteria. Um, the process for gaining that information is re- is what we call a clinical interview, and so it's really just sitting and talking to the individual about what their substance use looks like, frequency, what are they using, how much, how often. Um, so a very big, long word, fancy word for that is called a biopsychosocial interview. Mm-hmm. And we not only ask about the substance use and the pattern, but we ask about other things, family history. Is there any legal history? What's their educational background like? So it's really kind of a comprehensive 360 degree uh, evaluation and interview with the person. Jessica. Uh, Lisa took the words right out of my mouth. That would have been the only thing I would have added. It, it definitely, the DSM-5 is how we can clinically diagnose someone, but in order to even get there, we have to get gathered for all, all the information first. And, you know, even that can be tough sometimes because you have to go on how honest is the person being. So, the, right. you know, we have to go off the information and the facts and we can't really read into anything else. Right. That's a good point that you brought up as far as um, that initial meeting and the only information having to go on is uh, what the person tells you. Right. And so it it definitely requires more interaction with that individual before an actual diagnosis can be made. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Okay. So here, help me out. I was reading an article from um, Vertava Health that stated consuming seven or more drinks per week is considered excessive or heavy drinking for a woman. And then 15, 15, not seven, but 15 drinks or more per week is deemed to be excessive or heavy 
drinking for a man. Why not the same amount for both? You know, that that's a really good question. Um, you know, looking at that, I would say from the article going through it as well, I would say that, you know, a lot of it's based on biology, you know, because mm-hmm. a, a woman's body is typically smaller than, than, a, than a man. So, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of it has to do with, you know, a, you know based on a woman's liver and things like that, they will tend to metabolize it, the alcohol faster you know, than a man will. And so I think that is, is the core difference. You know why it's seven versus fifteen. Um, you know, so like I said, you know, the women will, will reach intoxication. You know, and what I call them a lot faster. Okay, that is helpful um, to know, and that's helpful information put in my pocket to share with other people. Thank you, Sean. Um, Jessica, a question for you: When term when you we use the term substance use, um, is it fair to say that? This term is all inclusive of not only just alcohol, but it also includes illicit drugs, prescribed drugs, and any substances, like any substance that may significantly impact or interfere with somebody's daily functioning or their physical functioning. Is it fair to say or to include all substances? I would say it is totally fair. Now, if you did a poll and asked people, you know, when they think of substance use, what would what would their answer be? I would guess that most people would say drugs, cocaine, meth, crack, alcohol even. And then when you say, what about caffeine or um, a lot of people now vape and what about tobacco, cigarettes, you know, which a little less taboo surrounding tobacco and coffee, caffeine, things like that. Um, people may not consider that a substance. Um, however, it is something that you know people can end up end up uh, depending on and using more or consuming more than they originally started off with. Caffeine is a great example. I mean, I, I can honestly say myself too. Every morning, <laughs> if I don't have that caffeine, I'm going to be a little tired. So right. it doesn't wake me up in the morning, and I use it for such. Plus, it's nice and warm, but, you know, that's just a small example of just everyday things, such as, like, caffeine, that people would see less of an issue than meth or alcohol, but definitely all substances. Yeah, that is awesome. Jessica, thank you for bringing that up, because it is those everyday, um, easily accessible substances, you know, let's just call them what they are, substances that could potentially be detrimental to our health that we take for granted, right? Um, a cigarette or caffeine, the, the chocolate that has the caffeine in it, you know, going through withdrawals from caffeine is no joke, right? And so we realize how dependent we become, Um upon those easily accessible uh, substances. So thank you for bringing that up. That that was really cool. So question for you, Sean, when do substances become concerning? I mean, how can an individual tell when their use, um, using Lisa's word, moderate or severe, when they're used, um, when they're becoming more dependent upon the substances that they use, like what would one look for? Yeah, and you know, before I answer the question, I'll, I'll just add to the last to the last question that um, uh, that that Jessica will also she'll be crabby and tired <laughs> if she doesn't have her caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it's true. 
But no, to, you know, I know that's an important question. Some people look at that and they wonder, like, well, do I have a problem? You know, when, when do I know I have a problem? Kind of what's that come off at? So, you know, to answer that, you know, there's 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 four bullet points that I really that I really want to go over with that. Um, so, some signs of alcohol, like alcohol, for example, that or any other substance that's getting out of hand, for example, is you know, first one is inability to stop music. You know, so you just realize you just don't know how to stop. You just keep, you know, it's always a reason for it. You know, you're always rationalizing. You gotta have it for this, for that. Get you, get you to this point, or get you to that point. So when you're using it, you know, when it becomes like that crutch, so to speak, um, you know, you're just using, using, using it, you know, frequently. Next bullet point is um, you often use or drink more than you intended to. You know, if you find yourself, oh, I'll just have, I'll go to the bar and just have one. Next thing you know, you know, you're stumbling out there or you blacked out or you don't remember, you know, what happened. So, you know, it's that, that saying like one is one is too many or one is not enough. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, or one is one is too many and a hundred is not enough. Right. You know, so you did it turns up, you know, going in that cycle. Next um, is when you often take more for desired effects. So tolerance. So basically, you build up, you build up a tolerance. You know, you you can't quite get that buzz that you had before. So you had got to have more and more and more of the substance to reach, you know, to reach where you want to be. So you get you, you know, the buzz or that or that high that you want. You know, it's taking more and more to get there. You know, was three beers. Now it's, you know, now it's nine or ten. You know, and it keeps growing and growing. Um, and and lastly, what I you know tell people all the time with it is. You know, when you continue to do it in the face of negative consequences, mm. you know, um, and so that's when you, for example, ask if somebody's got multiple, that's pulled over multiple times for DUI or something like that, but then you keep doing it, you know. Somebody that's in a home, like their spouse, has said, hey, if you keep doing this, I'm, I'm out, or, mm-hmm. you know, and then, you know, next thing, you know, to cope with that, you go and drink some more, you know, and mm-hmm. so it's like continuing to do something in the face of that consequence if you know it's there. Yeah, that is really good. Sean, I want to bring up something from a conversation that you and I had um, not too long ago, as far as um, the pandemic and COVID. Um, Have you seen an increase in substance use or the clients that you're working with? Has there been like an increase in substance use since the pandemic? You know, when you said negative consequences or, or traumatic experiences that could definitely um, increase substance use. Um, have you seen an increase? For sure, we have. And, you know, I think, you know, I would attribute it to, based on my observation, attribute it to a lot of the um, isolation. Ah. You, know, you know, have to isolate. You've been forced to isolate, you know, if you want to be healthy. But, you know, and so when you're in recovery, isolation can be very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because support is, is uh, is very vital when you're when you're struggling with a substance use disorder. You have to have people around you. You need some kind of connection. Not you know Zoom and so like that. Technology helps, but you know there's something to be said for that human connection. I think a lot of people, because a lot of our clients struggle with depression and anxiety already. So when we get them in a situation where they got to sit at home and just have their thoughts, you know, and, you know, and nothing else, that can that's been really harmful, um, detrimental to recovery. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. It's good insight. So we've learned thus far um, how a professional would 
uh, first of all, we learned appropriate language. Thank you, Lisa. And then we've learned how um, professionals would go about uh, diagnosing a substance use disorder. There's this term that I would like to um, bring some knowledge or some clarity to for our listening audience. Stage-wise interventions or stage-wise treatment. Uh, Lisa, what are stage-wise interventions and how are they used as a form of treatment? So that was a, a phrase that was actually newer to me. And as I as I was thinking about it, I'm like, gosh, I never really thought about them as stage-wise interventions. They are just things that you do um, based on where the person is at in their own knowledge and understanding of their use. And so when we talk about someone that truly has um, a disorder to the degree that they're going to need help and that they do need to make some changes, let's say they do meet the criteria, um, we have what's called stages of change. Mm -hmm. So to talk about interventions that are stage-wise, that's referring to the stage of, of change in which place the person is in. So in the pre-contemplative stage, somebody isn't really even aware that they may have a problem. Maybe somebody suggested it to them, or maybe they had a negative consequence occur, but they're really not thinking about their use in terms of being problematic. Contemplation is somebody that maybe, um, they maybe have a little bit of awareness of consequences, but they're not really ready to do anything. Um, preparation is somebody who has actually acknowledged a problem, made a commitment to change. And then the next phase is action which is then, you know, doing the things necessary, making the behavior changes, engaging in treatment, whatever that looks like for them. And then hopefully once they can maintain some abstinence and learn those patterns and repeat those positive behaviors, they go into that maintenance phase. So those are the stages that the, that's referring to. Stage-wise interventions then are applying interventions appropriate to where the person is at. Okay. So you don't want to take a person that's in the pre-contemplation stage, mm -hmm. start talking about, uh, you know, behavior changes, changing friends and environments and behavior patterns leading to their use. They're not going to hear it, right? right. Because they're in pre-contemplation. So they're not ready to talk about that. So a stage-wise intervention is applying the appropriate behavior intervention and therapy technique that is compatible with where the person at is in the stage of change. So early on in pre-contemplation and contemplation, um, they might just uh, administer a screening. A professional might just administer a screening tool and ask some questions about use. That's appropriate to somebody that hasn't really given it much thought or not ready to consciously address the situation. Then when you get into that preparation and action, you're actually getting into some intervention types, maybe cognitive behavioral therapy, a medication-assisted therapy, behavior therapy and some self-management, the person seeking supportive groups and resources. So again, those are appropriate to where that person is at along those stages of change. And then lastly, in somebody that's in that maintenance stage, they may do recovery checkups, um, have ongoing visits with um, maybe a peer support person, mm -hmm. those kinds of things. So I hope that illustrates kind of how you have to pair the intervention to where the person's at. Okay. So tailor, it's like tailor-made treatment, right? When you go and yeah. you have something custom-made for you, it's Absolutely. like custom-made treatment. So that's great. Thank you, Lisa. That's good information to, to know and just to understand. But here's my follow-up question to that. Um, Jessica, can you help me understand, are, 
are these stages like really evidence-based and how does one rapidly move from stage to stage? Yeah, so I would say that these stages are definitely evidence-based. Um, you know, if we took a certain amount of people and observed them over a certain amount of time, we would, even if we weren't, we didn't know all the information that Lisa just gave us, we would be able to see the changes or lack thereof, and we would be able to even put words closely related to what they're called, you know, the, mm -hmm. the pre-contemplative and the contemplative and the so on and so forth. So definitely evidence-based. It's just something that kind of happens um, naturally, really. It's a natural progression mm -hmm. uh, that people go through when they, they finally reach that point where they're like, oh my gosh, I think I might have a problem. And then they sort of maybe question it. Well, maybe I don't. Maybe I do. And then mm -hmm. you start to you know, change a little bit with, okay, I have a problem. Now I want to get some help, you know, which would be the persuasion on into the action. So the other part of that question, how rapidly does one from stage, you know, progress from stage to stage? That's a wonderful question. Mm -hmm. um, there's not a, there's not an answer. Like, I wish I could tell you, it takes 21 days for somebody to move gradually and they're ready for relapse prevention or maintenance stage. Mm -hmm. uh, however, it, it does not work. Kind of going back to what you said, tailor-made treatment or client-centered care or whatever we want to call it. Mm -hmm. um, it's very much based on that person and, and sadly, or maybe not sadly, maybe just factually, mm -hmm. some people don't make it to the action stage or the relapse prevention stage. Some people die in the midst of their addiction and never admit that they have a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, so it really depends on the person, um, as, as depending on how, how much they move along in those stages or if they move along, or sometimes they'll move along and then they'll jump back the other way. That is so good to share and good to know, because if a family is trying to help a loved one get help and um, they've been trying for years and it just seems like there's no progression being made or there is progression and then the, the family member or the one with the potential challenge falls back. Um, it's important to know that there is no um, checklist or there's no evidence stating that you will be in a specific phase for like a set amount of time and then you move on. It truly is tailor-made, right? It's person-centered care using the professional term. Thank you, Jessica. Absolutely. <laughs> That's great information. Thank you. So are these stages then on a continuum? It sounds like they kind of are. Yes, I'll, yeah, I'll definitely say they are. As Jessica mentioned, they, you know, people go from, you know, stage to stage and they can also go you know go backwards with that you know and that's what i think of when I ask that question and, you know and for me it's helpful you know it helps me when i'm working with somebody to understand that and you know it helps me to be able to help me to understand that i need to count you know count the wins differently mm -hmm. with people and help them see like you know this is where we are right now you know remember you you know what your people love you were able to do this and you know, we can get there again and it's not, you know, help people see, help clients see the, you know, see the path and help explain that to them that it is on a continuum and you will, you may, you know, you know, you'll, you'll progress and you may have a few setbacks and it's okay, you know, mm -hmm. you can where you are and go from there. 
That is cool. That's good to know um, that so that one can always. So since it's on a continuum, is it fair to say um, anyone can answer? Is it fair to say that one is always in recovery then? I would say it's fair to say that. Yeah. Yeah. OK, awesome. All right. So question for each of you. As an expert in the field of addiction, what are some um, tools used by other professionals that serve as a guide um, that helps to identify if an individual has an addiction? Yeah, we, we do use tools. That's very helpful in that, you know, in that assessment piece, um, that initial interview or uh, meeting somebody uh, and enrolling them in the program. So um, one tool that I'll mention is uh, the audit, um, which stands for Alcohol Use Disorder interview tool. I wasn't prepared for the acronym. Yeah. <laughs> so we use it so much. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, so I got the gist of everything. I'll call you for, you know, Yeah. So in that, you know, that's, uh, that's a very helpful tool to use. It helps to have an initial um, uh, snapshot of somebody's substance. I'll take a snapshot because it's not, you know, they're, they are very accurate, but it's not, so it's not end-all, be-all. It's not the only thing we use to assess, um, you know, or to diagnose. Cool, thank you. So uh, for many years, I think I lost track, but I know it was at least 10. Um, I was uh, a trainer in for the state of Kansas in an assessment instrument called the Addiction Severity Index. And basically, in that big long word again, it was a biopsychosocial assessment. It, it's actually kind of a screening and, and assessment instrument in one. Mm -hmm. And what it did was ask not only questions about the different substances somebody might be using, quantity, frequency, but it asked about family relationships. It asked about any emotional or psychiatric issues that they might have. Mm -hmm. It asks about any legal uh, issues they might have asked about their housing environment, their employment history, because if someone has got uh, a substance use disorder, it does not occur in a vacuum apart from the rest of their life. It is eventually going to impact all of the areas that I just talked about. Yeah. And so that uh, addiction severity index was just a really comprehensive way to have about a one hour discussion with somebody cover all those bases. So I'm a little partial to that mainly because I trained it for so long. Mm -hmm. I would say to add to Lisa and Sean, uh, we also use here at Recovery Health Services the, the DAC, um, the, the drug abuse screening tool. And so kind of like what you said, Lisa, we use for every intake assessment the DAC, the audit, and it takes information about their drug use, their alcohol use, and then along with that, similarly to the ASI, we do that full-blown psychosocial, all the questions in the world, trying to get all the information and compile everything, family relationships, and, and then, then go to the DSM-5 to make the call and to go further with treatment. Uh, we also do use the ASI, though. So we are also very familiar with that. So Yay. Yeah. Um, I will also add that anytime family members can give information, um, you know, you have to kind of take it with a grain of salt. 
make sure that it's being given in the proper context and not being given given maliciously or yeah. uh, out of spite. But sometimes getting information from the family members can be extremely helpful. Um, also, if there are other people involved, like maybe a primary care provider or a probation officer, um, that that collateral information can be really helpful. Agreed. Definitely agree. Shawna, you mentioned the audit when you first uh, started talking, um, the alcohol use disorder identification tool or test. Um, definitely um, a great tool to use. And thank you for bringing that up. We appreciate that. All right. This conversation is so helpful for me. I hope you, got, I hope you all are agreeing with that. So now, again, to, to start, brief recap. I mean, we talked about the language. We talked about how to diagnose. And then we talked about stage-wise interventions and treatment, appropriate ways to um, intervene. It should someone, um, depending on their stage of, of or severity of use, um, ways that we can do that. And we learned that that's definitely um, tailor-made or custom to that individual. But what if it comes to medications? Um, Sean, I know that you and I have had some conversations in the past. If an individual is already taking medications for a physical condition, and maybe they're starting to see an emerging pattern of alcohol use or any type of substance use, are there certain prescription medications that can be or that should be avoided? Yeah, there sure are, Prisha. And, uh, you know, I was able to look through uh, goodprescription.com or goodrx.com. Um, mm-hmm. uh, y'all may have a more clear picture of what that looks like. So um, so I'm not going to go through every single med, but I'll just kind of touch on general categories of medications, uh, if you will. So, um, so you want to avoid, with alcohol especially, you want to avoid any painkiller um, and narcotic, for sure. You want to avoid the combination of those. Um, opiates, you know, uh, you know, the oxycodone, you want to avoid those. You want to avoid any anti-anxiety medication, um, okay. but antidepressant and ADHD medication. You also want to avoid uh, using alcohol, if possible, with, with any nitrates, which would be the blood pressure medicine. Okay. Um, and also, you want to avoid alcohol with benzodiazepines. Um, so that is so those. So the opiates and the benzos, they're very, very dangerous with alcohol because they're both uh, the both suppressants. They both suppress your respiratory system. Mm-hmm. And so when you when you do that, that's that's where the root of a lot of overdose happens. You stop breathing, essentially. And so that's why it's, that's why it's so so very important to not mix. You know. Uh, you know, not make, not make any medication you can. Um, if you have any questions about that, always consult with your primary care physician about what you should be drinking on. It really anything. Yeah. Um, some of the other symptoms or some of the other things you want to avoid, sometimes when you drink on medicine, it, it impacts the effectiveness of the medication. So the medicine may not work as well when you're drinking on it. Um, the medicine may cause you to get um, drunk faster. You can leave a faster buzz. Mm-hmm. I guess a couple of drinks might be like totally like you had 10, uh, you know, so those are, you know, and it, you know, and so, and so, so alcohol makes certain meds toxic, toxic to your body. So you just want to avoid that and, you know, consult with your physician at all times. Absolutely. Thank you, Sean. That was a really good resource. What is the name of that resource again? It is www.goodrx.com. Awesome. Thank you, Sean. Um, okay. 
we're wrapping up our time here. Just a couple more questions for you all. Um, if someone is interested in obtaining additional information on substance use or how to get help for a family member, or maybe even themselves, um, they're wondering, does this topic look like me? What would you suggest? Uh, you know, I would suggest if you know, um, anytime you have a question like that, if you have a family member or something that you're worried about, you can, you can always you can always reach out to the medical center. You can call Recovery Health Services. Uh, you know, we're at we're at eight one six four zero four five eight five zero. You can always reach out to us um, for assistance with that. Um, you can also look up uh, uh, SAMHSA on the internet. Um, that's S A M H S A, I believe. I was going to mention SAMHSA as well, because they have a, a 1-800 helpline. Um, something that I, I would want people to know is uh, at the Mid-America Addiction Technology Transfer Center, we can help um, professionals kind of whittle down specific information that they might be needing because there is a ton out there, a ton. And so when people are wanting solid research, they're wanting evidence-based information, we can provide that. And if a family member doesn't know where else to turn, they could always contact us too. We don't get those inquiries often, but we are tapped into a huge network of providers like Sean and Jessica, and we can make referrals and link people to the appropriate professionals to get help. So we would not be a wrong door. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, those are both great answers. Um, as I was listening to you all, I was thinking, gosh, what else could somebody do? And, you know, I thought I, I put myself in their, their shoes or even the family's shoes of what would I do if I had a family member? Or what would I do if I think I had a problem? They would probably do a Google search. And so I would say you can't go wrong with Googling and con contacting whatever comes up, whether that's Truman or Comprehensive or where, whoever. And I would hope as a provider myself that whoever answered that phone would welcome that person's questions um, and provide information and help them get the help they need. And, and another thing that might come up in a search would be community things like AA, NA, CAG, Celebrate Recovery, Smart Recovery. So you can't go wrong with any of that stuff. I'd say reaching out or even typing it and searching for help, uh, those are all good places yeah, that is really good. Um, thank you, Jessica. Um, because most people will have their phones on them and most people will um, definitely have access to Google if they can't remember. Now, what did Sean say? Or what did, where does Lisa work? They can always Google that. So that is um, all the information shared is definitely helpful. Thank you so much. Last question for you guys, for the experts. Is there anything you'd like to leave the listening audience with? Any nuggets of wisdom? I guess I would encourage people, um, if they have a concern about a friend or a family member, because they are seeing things that indicate there might be a problem um, behavior-wise, don't be afraid to just express concern. And when I say express concern, I simply mean I'm worried about you. Um, it, it seemed like the other night when we were together, you know, we'd had a few drinks, but I'm worried. Now that can be met with a variety of um, reactions. But one thing that we know, especially in this past year with the pandemic is more than anything, people want to know that somebody cares. And it's important to let somebody know 
that you care, even if they completely disregard what you say and tell you you're crazy and that they don't have anything going on, please just at least express it. It may be the start of something. Absolutely. Nothing like that compassionate service care, that compassionate service delivery. Absolutely. And with that, I would say, um, you know, from the person that's wondering's perspective, I guess, I would say if you if you find yourself asking yourself the question, do I have a problem? Then, you know, then you, then you might want to wonder, you know, um, you know, there, there's probably a reason you're asking yourself. Mm-hmm. So, so you might want to, at the very least, if you have any kind of provider, well, you know, just bring your concern to that provider, wherever that is, you know, you have to see a doctor of any kind or something you want to, you know, you want to ask, you know, kind of, you know, address your concern and hopefully that provider will, you know, steer you in a certain direction. Yeah, that's good. I like both responses. Um, <laughs> yeah. What I, what I could add is um, just kind of going back to whether you're, I like what Lisa said, and it's so, it can be so challenging, but family members or loved ones of the person who may have an issue or problem, just go share that concern as a place of love and caring versus shame. Mm-hmm. Um, with that being said, if you're the person, like Sean said, who you're, you're questioning, gosh, do I have a problem? Oh, there's, there can be so much shame that can stand in the way of even taking that first step to bring it up to your primary care physician or, or whoever. And so I just, I just would want to encourage that person to, oh, try to, try to put that aside for just one moment as hard as it can be and just reach out um, and know that we are not here to judge you. That is not our job yeah. at all. And I would hope that would be with with any provider that person would go to and and ask and make those first steps. Yeah, I think um, I really appreciate what you just said, Jessica, as far as there's no shame, there's no judgment here. Um, And I think just that phrase alone for anyone listening um, could be the key for them to reach out to get help. So I appreciate um, I appreciate that. If anyone is experiencing a crisis, please, please call 1-888-279-8188 for suicide prevention support. Please call 800-273-8255. If you are in the Kansas City, Missouri area and would like to inquire more about treatment opportunities offered at Recovery Health Services, please call 816 404-5850. As we end today's session, I'd like to thank our professionals, Lisa Carter, Jessica Berry, and Sean Holland. You guys are amazing. You've definitely been insightful and helpful to me, and I'm sure to the listening audience as well. So thank you for joining us today, and thank you, listening audience, for tuning in. It is our hope that during today's session, there was some helpful knowledge provided that can serve as a potential resource for you or a family member. Stay tuned for another essential conversation addressing misconceptions and maybe our own personal bias of substance use. Thanks again for tuning in and take care.